Thank you so much, Greg. Appreciate that. My lovely wife, Jackie, ladies and gentlemen, would you show her some love? Hey, so uh, before we dig into what Greg just read today, I, I do want to share some good news with you. So last night at our women's uh, Christmas dinner, we had about 230 women gather here last night. And yeah, isn't that amazing? And uh, they talked about the importance of gathering, the importance of community, how it's in community that iron sharpens iron. And uh, one of the interesting things that Jackie shared last night was if you have two types of iron, uh, those, that, th those two t different types of iron will actually sharpen one another more quickly than the same kind. And that speaks to the different kind of personalities that we all have, right? The differences that we all have, how we need those differences to sharpen one another. Jackie also talked a little bit about how families should deal you know, there's a little bit of crazy in every family. If uh, that's not true of your family, you're probably that little bit of crazy, right? So, yeah, but that's true every holiday. So, hey, listen, we're finishing up a series that we're calling Generous. And if you would, I want to take a little mental quiz with you. It's just a true or false. And uh, so uh, I'm going to ask you a few questions, and again, you just kind of keep a log of how many of them you answered true and how many of them you answered false. So uh, how many of you have you at least once spent money unwisely? Okay, while we're even raising hands, total disclosure, right? I have at least once compared myself with someone else financially. Come on, just once, really? All right, I have at least once written a check that bounced. I have at least once spent more on something than I could actually afford. I have at least once splurged on something not in my budget or that I didn't plan to buy. And I have sometimes wished I could be more generous. All right, so how many of you have at least, you answered true to at least one of those things? Yeah, all of us, right? Uh, and I think what's so powerful about that, here's why I think that happens for a lot of us, is that we live in a culture where we're constantly bombarded with a singular message, and the singular message is just this, more, more, like make more, spend more, do more, get more, have more. And sometimes we're all tempted to bow, you know, at that altar. And this is why the Bible has a tremendous amount to say about money, about resources. And again, even in the passage that Greg uh, just read. Now, I want you to notice in that passage how often some variation of the word rich is used. In fact, in three verses, it's used as an adjective, a noun, an adverb, and as a verb. So words like rich, riches, richly, and to be rich are used so closely together. It's very clear Paul's trying to make a point, and the point is this, that generosity starts with our God. Because we all we all serve a generous God, and we're going to see that very clearly. And he begins this way. He says, look, I want you to instruct those who are rich. So some of us hear that, and we go, phew, 
I'm off the hook, right? Because he's talking to rich people. I can check out. I'm not rich. You know, uh, I'm not even close, right? So that he's not really even talking to me. And I think what I just want to point out is a couple things, because it's really a matter of perspective. What if I told you that if you have uh, $42,000 of annual household income, you are in the, among the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the entire world. What that means is that when 90% of the world looks at you, they would say that you are rich. I also want you to think back, you know, a little earlier in 1 Timothy 6 when Lee taught. He, in 1 Timothy 6.10, just a few verses before the ones we just read, Paul talked about the love of money, remember? And he said, money's not bad, but the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil. Some people have even wandered from the faith when they're eager to get it. And so here, what Paul is doing is he's talking about the antidote to the love of money. The antidote to the love of money is generosity. Um, and, and so I think that in that passage, Paul says something so interesting. He says, look, if we have food and clothing, with those things, we're going to be content. So I think it's very fair to define someone as rich if they have anything more than food or clothing. I think that's a, an honest definition right out of 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, it's also so interesting to me that when Jesus talked about money, and it's so fascinating, he actually talked about money uh, more than almost any other subject other than the kingdom of God. And every time Jesus talked about money, he was talking about money to Jewish peasants. He was talking about money to people that made pennies a day. And could do little more than just survive. And then furthermore, you know, there's a famous story in the New Testament. It's called The Rich Young Ruler. The Rich Young Ruler is a story about a young man who inquired about following Jesus, but he walked away from Jesus because he, he loved his wealth too much. He loved his money too much. And I want you to think about this young man. Think about all the things he did not have, even though he was wealthy. He didn't have indoor plumbing, he didn't have running water, he didn't have hot water, he didn't have heat, he didn't have air conditioning, he didn't, didn't own a television or a car. My point is this, that just by virtue of the day and age in which we live, we live far more luxuriously than even the rich young ruler did. So instruct those who are rich... Anyone in the room that has more than just food and clothing. Instruct those who are rich. I also want you to note that he says instruct those. And uh, it's so fascinating to me. Some versions say command here. Command those who are rich. So this is a big, big deal. Uh, this means that if a church isn't talking to her people about how to view and steward their resources. That church, that the teachers of, those ch of that church aren't being obedient to the Word of God. And uh, Paul starts with kind of three warnings about money and then he, um, or about wealth in particular, and then he uh, goes into three promises that are true as well. Look at verse 17. He says, as for the rich 
in this present age. Now, what's so fascinating about that phrase to me, Paul could have just said, hey, as to rich people, but he doesn't do that. He says, as to rich people in the present age. And I think he added that additional statement on purpose. He wants to remind us, friends, that none of us get to take our riches with us into the next age, into the next life. That riches in this age don't automatically translate into riches in the next age. In fact, Jesus said it this way in Mark chapter 8. He said, look, what does it profit a man to gain his soul or to, to gain the whole world if he forfeits his soul? So the caution here is to realize that all the energy and all the effort that we pour in to our stuff, that's just tamper, temporary. We don't get to keep any of it. And I can be wealthy in this life, and that doesn't guarantee that I'm going to be wealthy in the next life. It all depends on how I use that wealth in this age, in this life. Great illustration for this. So James Dobson several years ago tells a story of how he learned to play Monopoly. And I'm just going to kind of read you some of his own words. Here's what he says. I learned how to play Monopoly from my grandmother, he says. She was a wonderful person. She raised six children. She was a widow by the time I knew her. She was also the most ruthless Monopoly player I've ever known in my life. She understood the name of the game in Monopoly was acquisition. She bought everything she could as fast as she could, and eventually she owned everything. She knew money was how you keep score in the game and that possessions are just a matter of survival. And so she beat me every time. But when I was about 10 years old, I took that summer with a friend and played Monopoly every single day. It dawned on me the only way to win the game was through a total commitment to acquisition. That summer, I learned how to play the game, and by the time fall had rolled around, I was more ruthless even than my grandmother. I was willing to do anything to win to, I was willing to bend the rules. I played with sweaty palms. Slowly, cunningly, I exposed the soft underbelly of my grandmother's weakness. I would say the game did strange things to Jim, wouldn't you? Here's what he says about his first win. I can still remember the day like yesterday. I looked at my grandmother. This is the person who taught me almost everything I know. She was an old woman by now. She was a widow. She had raised my mother, and she had practically raised me. And I took everything she had. I destroyed her financially and psychological. I watched her, I watched her give her last dollar and quit in utter defeat. It was literally the greatest moment of my, my life, he writes. But even in my triumph... My grandmother had one last lesson to teach me. Now, Jimmy, all the hotels, all the money, all the property, let's put it all back in the box. All of the houses and hotels, Park Place and Park Lane, all the railroad stations, all the utilities, all that wonderful money, she said, it all goes right back in the box. He writes this, I didn't want it all to go back in the box. I wanted to leave the board out permanently as kind of a memorial, you know, to what I had just done and achieved. It was as if my grandmother was taunting me. None of it's really yours. It never belonged to you in the first place. You don't any, own any of it. It was just a game. And now all that goes back in the box until somebody else pulls it out and somebody new gets to acquire all those things. And isn't that the way the game of Monopoly works? And it's not just the game of Monopoly, is it? 
It's true of, uh, of our lives and our stuff as well. You and I, friends, the reality is we don't get to keep any of the stuff that we will spend a lifetime collecting. All the money, all the work, all the maintenance, all the stuff, all the insurance, all the property, at some point, all of that goes back in the box, right back to God, who is its rightful owner. So he says, look, just remember, when you think about wealth, wealth is not permanent, it's temporary. And then look what else he says. He says, charge those, uh, charge them not to be arrogant uh, and to put their hope in wealth. So, so the second thing he's saying is, look, not only is wealth temporary, but look, it can create pride if you're not careful. Now, the word charge here is a word we've seen before in 1 Timothy. It's a word that's connected to Timothy's pastoral authority, his ability to teach people as a shepherd of God. And so he's saying, look, you charge them before God not to be arrogant about what God has given them. In fact, that word haughty or arrogant is a compound word that means to think or cherish exalted thoughts about yourself. And so the temptation here is so easy, it's so familiar. All of us have probably felt this at one time or another. But this even occurred in the Old Testament. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, I just want to read you a passage. Now what's happened is God's led his people into the promised land and they're going to begin to prosper. They're going to begin to thrive. And so here's the warning that God gives them in the middle of their prosperity. He says, when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and you live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart will be lifted up and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. And then verse 17, Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. It's so easy, isn't it? What he's saying is wealth can kind of deceive us. It can, it can lead us to believe that, uh, well, here's kind of, kind of the way the process works. I have this, I like this, I did this, I deserve this. I have this, I like this, I did this, I deserve this. See? See, and that kind of self-talk flows out of things like self-importance and self-reliance and self-congratulations. And it always gives rise to arrogance, and I'll tell you why that's true. Because money, yours and mine, when we have it, it creates solutions. It produces comfort. It makes things happen. Money gives people options and a level of power. Wealth can actually create a scenario where you become accustomed to getting things just the way you like them, just the way you, right, when you like them, right? And uh, you're able to buy things of the highest quality, and people cater to your needs, to your wants, your desires. 
And when you become so accustomed to people catering to your needs, your wants, and your desires, pretty soon you start to believe that you deserve all of that, see? And you begin to treat everyone around you as if they should always be serving you. See, it's an entitlement mentality that can creep into any of our thinking through the back door of your life. So he's saying, look, first warning about wealth, you've got to remember it's temporary. Second warning, you've got to remember, you know, that it can, it can lead to arrogance if you're not careful. You need to guard against that. And then thirdly, he says, look, money can become a chief rival to God. It can become an idol. It can become more important to you. The temptation is there for it to be more important to you than God. In fact, here's what he says, nor... Command those who are rich not to set their hope on wealth, which is so uncertain, um, uh, but to hope in God. Now, the word hope here is so important in the Bible because it is synonymous for what a person, not just for what they trust in or believe in, but also for what they rely upon, what they view as the source of their life, what they view as a sense of their security, what they view as a, a feeling of safety. And the reality about wealth is that it can move some, it can, uh, it can cover over something that's absolutely vital to your relationship with God and my relationship with God. You know what that is? Need. God, I need you. See, wealth blurs our vision to the fact that we really need God. Uh, this is just a big deal. A person with money can lose their sense of desperation or dependency upon God. I want you to notice, too, that Paul calls wealth here uncertain. Uncertain. Not only is it deceitful, but it's uncertain. This comes from Proverbs 23, 5. It says this, When your eyes light on it, which is money or wealth, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Now, I've been around long enough to about every 15 years see some kind of stock market pullback or stock market crash, and it's pretty regular. And so about three or four times over the course of my lifetime, I've been able to look at the stock market and see millions, if not billions of dollars just disappear literally overnight. And that's what he's talking about here when he calls wealth uncertain. And so the caution is, look, be so, so careful if you have, if you have anything beyond food and clothing. Be so, so careful because the temptation is going to be for you to put your hope and your trust and your security and your identity in the, in the number of zeros in your bank account and not in God. And while money is not necessarily, having money or wealth is not necessarily wrong or bad, there just are dangers and temptations that come along with wealth that can take hold in us when we withhold it from God. And then Paul makes three promises about generosity that I think are just so powerful and so important to remember that Paul's ultimate aim here in these passages is to call us to a better path, 
a better way that flows out of our relationship with Jesus and flows out of the generosity of our God. Our God is a generous God. And so he says, look, God is our hope, not money, not stuff. The contrast in verse 17 is so clear. Not to set their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God. See, he said, now to hope in God means that we find our identity, our sufficiency, our security, our safety in God rather than money. It means that we trust him completely and we know that our future is tied up in him, not our future bank account, right? So here's the way I would say this, that following Jesus involves a transfer of trust from money to God. Money to God, money to God. And then the second thing Paul says that he reminds us here, not only does he say that, uh, you know, God is our hope, not money, but he also says that everything is a gift from God. Uh, In fact, based on what some of you have heard, some of you may be sitting there kind of thinking, well, okay, pastor, are you saying that wealth is bad? No, I'm not saying that, that wealth, or I'm not saying that God thinks wealth is bad. The issue here is not money. The issue is what money can do to your heart and what money can do to your soul. See, So Paul in verse 17 gives this important description of God that helps us kind of know how to balance all this out. Look at what he says. He says that God richly provides. He doesn't just provide for us. He richly provides. So if he richly provides, how could he possibly be against riches? Because God himself provides in exactly the same way. He richly provides with everything for us to what? To enjoy. Paul and you know, God has provided richly, and God is not against riches because he's the one who's blessed richly. Further, God is not against us enjoying our things. We're told very plainly and very clearly here that, that we're given all that we have so that we might enjoy it. So that means we don't need to feel guilty about what we have or guilty about our wealth, right? If we get one thing right, That everything you and I have been given, we have been given by a generous and a gracious God. It's so important to understand this. This is the fork in the road when it comes to money, to possessions, and wealth. Does your money turn, does your wealth turn you back toward God in gratitude and generosity, or does it turn you inward to yourself in arrogance, pride, and greed? See? The gifts of this life, friends, the God who provides richly for us so that we might enjoy all that he's given, given us is not meant to be a cul-de-sac of self-satisfaction. It's meant to be a river of blessing to others. See, it's all about perspective. If you know that everything you have, you've been given richly by an uber-generous God, then you are more likely to turn around and be generous with others and generous with the causes that God tells you to be generous to. You and I, we are just managers and stewards of what he has so graciously given to us. So he says, look, we're to put our hope in God, not money. 
we're, you know, we're to remember that everything is a gift from God. And then thirdly, that generosity is just a natural response to a generous God. What happens when we've come to hope in God and see everything as an undeserved gift? Well, the natural result is just generosity. In a negative sense, wealth can make us prideful and arrogant if we think we did it. And in a positive sense, wealth can make us generous and kind if we know that God did it. And so what's your perspective? And what does that look like? I mean, if true gratitude really expresses itself in generosity toward others, what does that mean? Well, look at verse 18. It gives us the sense. They are to do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So what he's saying is those who've been richly blessed by God should be generous, not just with their treasures, but with their time and with their talents as well. This is why uh, he says, look, they are to do good. That's time. They are to be rich in good works. That's using my talents to bless other people, not just myself or even my own family. And sometimes I think we misunderstand generosity. Some of us, I think, have this perspective about generosity. We think, well, generosity is like God gives me $100,000 and then just asks me to give that away all at once. And I would, I would say to you, that's a terrible view of generosity. Here's more what it looks like, and it's way harder. God gives us $100,000 in $10 bills. He gives us $10,010 bills and then asks us to give ourselves away $10 at a time every single day, just little by little by little by little. You know what I liken this to? In Ephesians 5, husbands are told to love their wives and to give themselves up for their wives every single day. Now listen, if my wife was standing in the street and a car was barreling toward her, there is no doubt in my mind that I would jump in front of that car, shove her out of the way, and take the hit of that car. That's not that hard. That's just impulse. But that isn't what God's asking me to do as a husband. God is asking me to die to myself a little bit every single day for my wife. And that's way harder. That's not impulse for me. That's not natural for me, right? It's hard for me to die a little bit every day to my wife. This is exactly the way the principle of generosity works. It works because we give ourselves away a little every day at our own expense for the betterment of others or the betterment of the church of God. What I'm telling you is this, generosity is not a one-time event, it is a lifestyle of sacrifice to God. It is, it's a lifestyle. In fact, there are, many of you probably know this, but there are three types of giving in the Bible. I want to talk briefly about those three types of giving. The first is called a tithe. A tithe. A tithe literally means a tenth portion. So we're to offer 
back to God a tenth of that which he has so graciously and generously given to us. Now, a lot of people, when they hear the word tithe, because they hear the word tithe in the giving of the law in the Old Covenant, they say, well, you know, that's part of the Old Covenant and the Old Testament. I no longer have to give a tithe today. I don't think that's true, and I'm going I'm to tell you very briefly why I don't think that's true. So first of all, in the book of Genesis, before the law was given, Abraham meets a priest. And it was a priest that Abraham recognized as being from God. And so when after he deals with this priest named Melchizedek, Abraham tithes a tenth of all that he owns to this priest. He tithed before the law was even given. Secondly, in Matthew 23, as Jesus talked about the tithe, he affirmed the tithe. Um, and then the author of Hebrews in chapter 7 said that as a priest on the order of Melchizedek, that Jesus still receives tithes and offerings today and that that's right and that that's fitting. Furthermore, in the book of Malachi, now I know Malachi's Old Covenant, but it's so interesting to me, in, in the book of Malachi, chapter 3, when God challenged his people to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, he did something in that context he's never done anywhere else in the entire Bible. See, we're constantly told, don't put the Lord your God to the test. Don't put your Lord God to the test. Don't do that. But God makes an exception when it comes to the tithe. And he says, test me in this. This is the one exception to putting me to the test. It's found in the tithe. So, um, so the second kind of giving is what I would call an offering. This could be anything above the tithe, anything above 10%. So let's say that you're passionate about a ministry or a charity and their cause. So you give your tithe to your local church into the storehouse, the place where you're fed. And then you give beyond that to whatever charity you love or whatever ministry you're passionate about. And then there's a third kind of giving. And I would call this just sacrificial generosity. This is probably going to only happen two to four times in your life. But there are going to be uh, intersections of your life where God will make a very, very big ask of you financially he will ask you to go out on a limb and trust him with your finances in a significant way in a way that doesn't make sense to your accountant in a way that doesn't make sense to our culture but just trust him with your stuff I remember back in 1998, we were, um, we were doing a stewardship campaign to build our uh, first building here, to buy property here. And at that time, we were meeting faithfully and regularly in the boys' club. And we probably had about 175 people that were faithfully attending SCC at the time. And what we found was that because we didn't have any property or staff or really much in savings, the bank didn't want to loan us the money to build this first building. And so what we ended up doing was going to our congregation, and we had 24 families. 
I can look around the room and see some of these families here yet today. We had 24 families that actually put their homes up as collateral on the loan for the church. And right away, we built that building, and in about three months, we shot up from about 175 to about 400, literally overnight. I mean, it was incredible what God was doing. And friends, over the years, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people place their faith and trust in Jesus for the very first time. I believe because of the the generosity and the risk that these 24 families were willing to take. In other words, they were willing to be less so that the church of God, the church of Jesus Christ, could be more. And I told you last week, if Jesus is going to come riding into town, it doesn't matter if it's this town or any other town, he is always going to do it on the backs of the generosity of his people. He's always going to ride into town on the backs of the generosity of his people. See? Now, so what Paul is saying here in 1 Timothy 6 is there's a clear connection between how we use our resources in this life and the reward that we get in the next life. And I believe that one of the reasons the Bible does this is because of a lie that you and I are often tempted to believe when we give. And here it is. I just gave a hundred bucks. I'm never going to see that again. I'm never going to see that hundred dollars again. So, so, you know, my wife and I are committed to the tithe. We're committed to all in. And I want you to know I get this because here's what kind of sneaks up in my heart sometimes. So the biggest check I write every month is to this church. That, church, that check is bigger than my house payment. It's bigger than any other bill that I have. And every once in a while, When I take a step backwards, I'll look at that amount and think, oh, I could do so much with that. There's so many things I'm saying no to right now that that if I wasn't writing a check that big every month, I could buy that stuff. And you know what I have to do in that moment? I have to repent. I have to say, God, I'm so sorry. God, I need to be investing in your kingdom. Your kingdom has to be the biggest check I write every single month. So, you know, I just have to repent. I have to change my mind about what I'm feeling and, you know, what I'm doing. Uh, But I think the reason the Bible reminds us, look, it isn't that when we give it away, we don't get it back. No, we get it back in the next age many, many times over. In fact, the Bible would argue generosity is the only way you get any of it back. The more tightly you try to hold on for it yourself, you lose it all. Just like the game of Monopoly, remember? See, this is why Jim Elliott, a young missionary who gave his life in uh, Ecuador, Uh, to trying to reach an unreached people group, an unreached group called the Aka Indians. He said this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. I want to say that again. Jim Elliott, who gave his life, he said he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which 
he cannot lose. And it's absolutely true. So what, what Paul's arguing here is that generosity is actually a better investment. It's an investment in eternity and not just the temporal. And not only is generosity a better investment, but generosity reflects a greater joy. A greater joy. Look at this, verse 19. They're to do this so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. In other words, Jesus is saying generous people live a better life. They live a deeper life, a richer life, both in this life and in the life to come. In fact, this word take hold uh, points us to the idea that not only is this person investing in a future age, in a future life, but that they're also investing in, in life right now, life today. Reminds me of a scene, some of you probably saw the movie Schindler's List. And a powerful, powerful movie about a man by the name of Oscar Schindler who saved 1,100 Jews from extermination at the hands of the Nazis by uh, employing their services at his company and then hiding them, sparing them a certain death. And there's one point in the movie where he's looking at all these men and women, kid, children, they're all getting on trains, getting ready to be shipped out. And you know what he says? He says, I could have done more. Like, I could have been more gracious. I could have been more generous. I could have saved more men, women, and children. See? Because there was that moment, right, where he just knew what was important. Friends, generous people come to understand what's most important about life, what's most valuable and vital. And they don't just lay hold of it for the coming age, they lay hold of it today. I mean, I think they they get a taste of what Jesus meant. Now, we don't really believe this, but Jesus did teach it. Jesus said in Acts 20, it's better to give than to receive. And there are moments where you and I, we just get a taste of heaven because of our giving, because of our generosity, I'll give you some examples. Every, every Monday through Friday, I drive in here to work, and I see parents dropping off their littles at our new kids' own preschool. And I watch somebody scoop up those kids, you know, and those parents can go off to work, and they can do what they have to do, knowing that we have their back that we have their little and that we're going to treasure them and we're going to love them and we're going to point them faithfully every day to Jesus. We're going to partner with those parents to help point their kids to Jesus. And I get a little taste of heaven because I know I'm invested in that. Every once in a while, a new woman, we have another woman getting ready to graduate really soon. Another woman will graduate from our Bridge to Hope house. A woman who had struggled with hook, you know, uh, bad habits, hang-ups. And she's free from addiction now, in love with Jesus. Because, you know, I invested in that. And so every time we have a woman graduate, I just get a taste of heaven right in my soul. Every time we baptize a man or a woman or a child, and I baptize a man or a woman who used to struggle with addiction, and now they're free in Christ Jesus, man, I just get a little taste of heaven in that. 
Like, and we're, and we're just getting started. We haven't even launched Shelby Supply yet. It's in its infancy stages, and it's going to be up and running. We're using Bridge to Hope, uh, the bridge, so much so that we have concerns we've already outgrown it, that we're going to have to double program. We thought there was plenty of room there when we first bought it because, you know, we're doing all of our biblical counseling, our food pantry, all of our support groups, all of our addiction recovery groups, all that's happening happening there and we're packing that place out for our celebrate recovery ministry and every time I hear that I just feel you know I feel God's joy I feel God's pleasure in that because I know I have an investment in that do you you need to be invested whether you have little or whether you have much. Friends, the way you handle and view your money is at the epicenter of the Christian life. And it's why Jesus talked so much about it to Jewish peasants. And it's why, over and over again, Scripture warns us with warnings like we're given today. And so, Will you, will you begin to invest in things that matter to God? Now, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for us, and then um, I'm going to, so I like to be practical, right, as it comes to what are some practical ways that we can grow in generosity. So in a moment, I'm going to introduce you to somebody, but first, I want to pray for you. I want to pray that you'll want to grow. In generosity that you'll see how vitally important it is so let me let me pray that for all of us heavenly father help us to really wrestle with the truth of what we've heard today god don't let us just walk home and and be the same people god grow our hearts remind us that god generosity starts with you and the way that you have so generously and graciously treated us And so help us be like you because we're never more like you than when we give. For God so loved the world that he gave. God, we want to aspire to better. We want to aspire to more. We want to take hold of that which is truly life. And so we ask you to help us today in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.